0: Here we go. Jan, since you're on sound this morning, I'm going to, have to let you know I got the Ohio Valley gunk, and so be prepared to mute when I cough, all right? So we're going to continue in our series through the book of Genesis that we've called Every Story Whispers His name. And we've looked at that, we've looked at all these stories and looked how there is this building momentum and building tension, the longing and the awaiting for the Messiah, for the coming of Jesus to come and make all things right again. And so last week we looked at Abraham who is this pillar of the faith and uh, he deserves more than one week. And so this is week two of Abraham. You have your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. As we looked last week at Abraham, who is this hero of the faith, we looked at his life, right? And one of the things that we saw was, as a hero and a pillar of the faith, his life wasn't all sunshine and rainbows, that he had ups and downs, he had mountaintops and valleys, that his life was kind of complicated, and it was full of times of faithfulness, but also times of rebellion, and he needed God's help to start over again and again This morning, as we continue to look at Abraham's life, what we will notice is that he is in a moment of crisis, and he's in the middle of a storm, and he, rightfully so, probably is freaking out a little bit. You see, in the previous chapters, what you would have found was that there were these kings who kind of allied themselves together, and they had been going around raiding other camps and cities and towns and going and slaughtering people and taking their wealth and their goods. And word gets back to Abraham that his nephew Lot was one of their victims and he had been kidnapped. And so what does Abraham do? He rallies the troops. He goes to all of his men and says, grab your swords, grab your shields. When night falls, we're going out. And under the cover of darkness, Abraham and his men sneak into the camp of these kings and their army. And while they sleep, they go and slaughter them, rescue his nephew Lot, and takes a whole bunch of their stuff, takes all the plunder, and he takes it back home with him. And so as you can imagine, after he's done this, that he's looking over his shoulder a little bit because he's worried that there's going to be revenge taken out on him. He's worried that these kings will kind of uh, put band-aids on, kind of lick their wounds, regroup, and be coming after him. And so Abraham is looking over his shoulder. He is worried that these these men, these kings are going to come and take him out. And so he's got that worry on the one hand. And then on the other hand, for some reason, it's kind of come to his mind and he's, been, he's reminded that you know what? God told me that he was going to bless the whole world through me and through my family. And he was going to going to do all this great stuff. And I'm 90 some years old. And my wife, no matter how good looking she is, as we saw last week, is in her upper 80s. And we still don't have a son. So how's this going to work? One of my servants is going to become the inheritor of all my stuff, and is going to become the inheritor of these promises if God doesn't give me a son. And he is really doubting that the Lord can pull this one off. Not only protect him from these kings, but also provide this son in his old age. You see, Abraham is in a little bit of a crisis. Abraham is in the middle of a storm, and he doesn't know what to do. He kind of is freaking out. You know, I can relate to that. I can relate to that because I've been in the middle of storms, I've been in the middle of crisis. Some crises are big and some are small, but you probably agree with me that in the moment they always seem big, right? And it's only till later that you look back and go, man, that wasn't as big a deal as I thought in in the moment, right? Really blew up, really thought it was a big deal in the moment, then you get hit either by a bigger wave, you're like, man, that was nothing compared to this one. Or you realize after a time that it wasn't that big of a deal. But that's only later, in the moment, it seems huge and it seems crippling and crushing. Well, I, remember, I remember for me that one of the crises was picking, picking college. What in the world did I want to do with my life? Right? Everybody told me, you need to get a job that you know, will never run out. Something we'll always need. So I'm like, okay. And then where am I going to go and how am I going to afford it? And what in the world is a FAFSA? Am I going to move away? Am I going to be close? What am I going to do? And it was so stressful. And then after deciding where I wanted to go and look at the price tag, and I was like, oh, my goodness. And trying to think, man, this is where the Lord wants me to open this door open. I'm going to go. And then, then it's just like door shut, door shut, door shut. I guess I'm not going to go there. What am I going to do? I got like a month to decide. The time is running out. I wonder if I can get my application in a time and you begin to freak out and it's a little bit of a crisis. I recently walked with my sister through a crisis when she called me up two months, or no, like a month before her wedding. And she said, brother, I'm not sure I can go through with it. Brother, I'm not sure I should, I should marry him. I said, okay. And we walked through that and she decided not to. And you think, okay, well, you just made that decision. Well, now you've got to uninvite everyone. You've got to explain to everyone who's going to call you and message you and text you and Facebook message you. What happened? What's wrong? And they want the scoop. You've got to cancel the venue. You lose all of the money, the, all the down payments you made on the, the venues and the food and all that. And then who's going to keep the dog? Let me just tell you something. Don't get a dog until you're married. All right? That's just a bad idea. Right? Who's going to get it? And then you have to deal with all the emotions of the breakup of someone you literally just thought you were going to marry in a month. And then you've walked through getting bad news from the doctor, having freaking out because you, your loved ones are on their way to the emergency room, you don't know what's happening. The crisis of getting the call that they're no longer with you. You see, being in a storm of crisis is like the weather in Ohio. If you're not in the middle of one, just give it a minute. It'll get cold again. You think it's going to be 40 degrees and you're good now. So you know exactly what I'm talking about because many of you in this room right now are in the middle of crisis. Like I know some of you who are in the middle of crisis right now. and, And if you're not, wait a minute and you will be soon. Maybe you find yourself right now in the middle of a financial crisis because you lost your job unexpectedly or you're in between jobs or something happened in the middle, maybe you got in a car wreck and right now you got to pay $1,000 to fix your car because someone blindsided you and ran away. Nobody, that didn't happen to anybody right here. Maybe you find yourself in your marriage is falling apart. Maybe your kids no longer listen to you and they're making dumb choices and you're pleading with them to stop doing that and they won't listen. Maybe you got the call from the doctor and about you or a loved one and you didn't like the news that you got. Wherever you find yourself, maybe it's in crisis right now. And, and what often happens when you're in the middle of crisis, but anxiety goes through the roof and, and, and you're freaking out and you're, and you're trying to move a million miles an hour and, and then you, you don't do anything productive. And so now you're just sitting and now you're just in depression and you don't know what to do, and you're like, woe is me, and this is hard, and then you get worried, and oh, and the worry, oh, the worry, you just spiral, and the worry, and then you get angry, and then you're just angry about the situation, and then you're angry at God for allowing the situation, and then you grow bitter, and then you're just bitter about the situation, and it just seems like this bottomless pit of spiral, and you don't know how to handle the crisis. Reminds me of one of the shows that me and my wife watch that we love, it's called The Good Doctor, and. Your doctor is about this autistic young man who is this brilliant up and coming doctor, and uh, but he's autistic, and so there was this moment where there's this quarantine happened because there was this outbreak, and they lock all the doors, and you know putting the plastic up, and, and that's fine, that doesn't bother him. He's just doing his doctor thing, right? But there's a light, and it's buzzing. Some of y'all seen this episode, and it's it's driving him crazy the whole episode. Well, eventually it becomes too much, and he finds himself in the fetal position, curled up on the floor, and there's this kid over here aspirating because he doesn't have his inhaler, and there's someone over here bleeding out, and there's someone over here that needs him, and and he's curled up on the floor, and he's unresponsive. People are like banging on the door, wake up, you gotta help him, wake up, and he's just laying there, and sometimes, sometimes that's us. Sometimes you find yourself, like literally or figuratively, curled up in the fetal position on the floor, not knowing how to take the next step in the middle of crisis. What in the world are you supposed to do? Maybe you have been there. And you would say to me, Brent, Brent, how am I supposed to handle this? What am I supposed to do? You see, you need an anchor. You need an anchor. When when I was in Norfolk, um, one of the interesting things about Norfolk, it's the largest naval base in the world. Uh, Getting ready to not be, San Diego is getting ready to be, but right now it is. And because of that, I got to meet a lot of Navy guys, a lot of... uh, Guys on ships and learned a lot of Navy lingo. And one of the cool things I got to do was go aboard the uh, the Bush, the George Bush, which is an aircraft carrier. And when I think about aircraft carriers, I think, okay, well, they got a big top, but they're not really that big. No, no. These things are like mini cities, all right? Like 5,000 people on board. It's crazy. And I got to go explore that and tour that and get to go all down and see all the rooms and where they sleep and where they eat and all kind of what's going on. And we got to this one room in the back, and as you walk in, you see these giant i mean like this big around rope like oh like one braid is like this you know and it's this giant thing and you're like what? and there's two of them i'm like what in the world is that and you follow it back and then there is this spool of this giant rope spooled up and then when you look out behind that then you see this giant metal oh that's an anchor oh my gosh because you've got to think about what, what does it take to stop this massive aircraft carrier that is going 30 knots in the middle of the ocean and you've got to stop and they drop this thing and it's not enough for it to just kind of hang in the water. It's got to go to the bottom of the ocean and grab some rock and dig in so it doesn't go anywhere. You see, we need something like that. We need an anchor in our life so that when the winds of crisis begin to blow, you won't get blown away with it, that you will be anchored. This morning, that's the question I want us to answer. How do we anchor our lives to God in such a way that the crisis and storms of our life do not blow us away? Let's turn to the text of Scripture, Genesis chapter 15. Moses writes, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, these words, starting in verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, "O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And, and Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, you, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, "O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the word of the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in uh, peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Listen to this. And when the sun had gone down, and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is the word of the Lord. So one of the things we've got to do before we really dig into this is remember the context. Remember the occasion that this story is written in. You see, Moses is writing this story a few hundred years after it happened and Moses is about to die. And he is about to, his people are about to enter into the promised land. And so Moses is passing the, the torch of leadership on to Joshua, trying to prepare him and prepare his people to go into the promised land and to face what they are about to face. To face the temptation of idolatry, to face gi- literally, literally giants in Jericho and to fight enemy after enemy after enemy. And Moses wants them to know that no matter what they face, God will be with them. And he wants them to trust in God's provision. Moses writes to them in the midst of that crisis, but at the same time, do you know what God was doing? He was not just writing to Israel, but writing to us. God was writing to us so that we might face crisis as well. So here's Abraham, and he is afraid of his enemies. He is afraid that he will never have a son of his own, and so his name and his stuff and his blessing will not go through his family but went to his servants and said. And so how does God respond to Abraham's doubt and fear? Like how does God respond when we doubt and fear? Notice that God responds with patience. Notice in verse one what he says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. That phrase is interesting, the word of the Lord, because that's something that you would see later in the Bible and the prophets happen all the time, right? The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. You see that all the time. But do you know who that never happens with except this one time? Abraham. It only happens this one time to Abraham and it seems to be because it is trying to communicate the gravity of what God is saying. It's almost like God was saying, Abraham, listen, I know we're tight. I know we're close. I know we've talked a lot, but you have forgotten who exactly it is I am. You have forgotten who it is I am and what I do. I am in complete control. I've got this. And he, then he reminds him, right? He says, I am your shield. I am your shield. You don't have to be afraid of your enemies. I will protect you. No one else is going to harm you. It's so funny, when you are removed from a situation, and we kind of look at this, it seems so funny. Of course God has them, right? We only see, though, what is right in front of us. We can only see what is right in front of us in this moment. But isn't it a comforting thing to know that God doesn't just see what's in front of us, but he sees what's all around us. He sees what is across the ocean. He sees what is in men's heart. He sees what they plot and what they desire. And he sees not just this moment, but past moments and future moments. And so when God says he's going to be your shield, you better believe that there are no arrows getting past him to strike you. You see, there is no safer place to be than behind the shield of the Lord. Because God doesn't respond to crisis. We've got to remember that. God doesn't respond to the crisis in your life. It's not like you, you come to pray, God, there's this crisis, this thing's going on. And he goes, oh, man, I didn't know. Thanks for letting me know. How can I help? He doesn't drive an ambulance saying, oh, thanks for the prayer. Let me get over there and help out. He doesn't respond to crisis. He already knew it was coming and he's already seen you through it. He's in complete control. In the midst of our panicking and in our worry, God is sitting on a throne and he is calm and he's like, man, I got this. So when storms hit us in life, when crisis comes, how does God remind you that he is in control? He does it the same way he always does it. How does he remind you of his promises? How does he remind you and reassure you that he's in control? The same way that he did to Abraham, through the word of the Lord. So let's be clear about something. Because some of you are going to be like, Brent, when I'm in the middle of a crisis, I'm not like going to take, take five minutes to go away and go sit down and have a little Bible study. I don't, I, I'm panicking, I'm freaking out. I don't have time to go and, and stop worrying about the crisis to go down and read my Bible. Well, one, maybe you should. Because you're panicking and you're worrying, your stress isn't helping anybody, especially you. And so maybe you should slow down and be still and know that there is a God. But let's say maybe that's true that the crisis you're in, you don't have time to go and get a word from the Lord to read the book. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe you don't have time to do that. And so how does God speak to you then? How does the word of the Lord come to you then to reassure you in the midst of crisis that he's got you? How does he remind you he's in control because you must remember the word of the Lord that you have stored up in your heart. You see, part of our problem our problem in our crises is, is that it's only after we get like, it's through the point of the crisis where we've tried everything in our own power and it's not working. You're like, well, maybe I should go to the Lord. And then, maybe I should go read the Bible. But then what happens? Well, I don't even know where to start. Right, people come to me all the time. Oh, I, I, I know I need this, where do I start? you kind of get this backward, you're kind of out of order, right? The reason it is important to be studying this book, to read it, to meditate on it, is not just so that you can learn fun, interesting things, right? And it might not even be for today. This sermon might not even be for you today. You might be reading this book, not for today, but for tomorrow, for next week, for next month, for next year. And as you store up its truths in your heart, when the crisis hits, they come overflowing. And so you don't have to go run and go find Bible study. You don't have to go run to the book because the book's in your heart. You know it. You will be able to call to mind the word of God and plant it in your heart. And in that moment, God will remind you that he's got you, that this situation is not too big for him. And so when the crisis comes, you will say, who may I have in heaven besides you? And on earth, I desire no one besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and the portion of my heart forever. You'll be able to say, there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ. I know he's got me. You'll be able to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. And so when you hide those promises in your heart, they come out in the middle of crisis and it stills your heart. To say, I know the wind is strong. I know it seems like there is a hurricane going on, but God is seated and he's got this. He is my shield. I love it when sometimes people say, man, you know, I just didn't get anything out of that sermon. Well, maybe it wasn't for you today, but maybe it'll be for you. Tomorrow. See, the step one, when the storm hits, you must remember the word of the Lord. You must remember his promise. But step two is we so often need more than words. See, words are important to us in this culture, right? We, we wanna be people of our word, right? Um, we, we use words to express our love and commitment to each other. We use words to express regret and how we're sorry for things that we've done. You might recall, for instance, a, maybe a romantic moment with a boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance or spouse where you're on a stroll maybe down the beach or, or wherever and the night's just going perfect and she's laughing at all your jokes, which never happened before. And, and everything's just going right and finally you're sitting there and under the, the milky twilight and you look at her in the eyes and, and all of these, these things want to come out of you. You just want to say all these things like, it's us versus the world, babe. I'll never leave you. I've got you. I love you with all my heart. You just want to make all of these overtures and all of these things. You want to say these things to express what's inside of you. Because your heart swells. We use words to make these types of promises. When in a wedding, right, you stand there and you make all of these promises, right? I'll never leave or forsake you. In sickness and in health, I will be here. But what about when you ask the question or the unasked question, how do I know? How do I know what you're saying is really true? How do I know you love me like you're saying you love me? When push comes to shove, how do I know you just won't leave? How do you know? And so what do we do in our culture? We sign. There's a marriage license. The preacher signs it. The couple signs it. Two witnesses sign it. Because for us, signing something puts the skin in the game, right? There's consequences, not because it's more than your word. You've put pen to paper. Now there are consequences for your actions. And so the Lord reassured Abraham with words. But what we see is that the words were not enough. It's like, yeah, but how am I going to know, God? God, I, I hear you saying this, but how do I know? How do I know you will be my show? How do I know you will be there for me? And so what does God do? But he puts on display physically the truth of his words. He puts on display physically the truth that he was trying to tell Abraham. You see, in this chapter, we see the clearest, most significant declaration of God's love and faithfulness to us, I think in probably the entire Bible. You see, words aren't enough. And God is saying to Abraham, let me show you just how committed I am to you. And so what does he do? He says, Abraham, I want you to go get these animals. And it's interesting because Abraham immediately knows what to do. God says, go get these animals. And he doesn't say, he, he doesn't give all these things like cut them in half and spread them out. It just says Abraham did this. He knew exactly what he was doing. So he got all these animals and he cut them in half and he spread them out, right? So you get the head end over here, the tail end over here, and he spreads them out. He makes an aisle between two halves of animals that he slaughtered and cut in half. You see, in this culture, when they didn't have pen and paper, there was nowhere to sign How did you make a contract? How did you make a covenant? You displayed it physically. and So this was a normal practice. And so you would have had a a, a bigger king and a lesser king, right? A king of a greater army and a lesser army. And if they were going to make a treaty together, they would say, okay, here is the treaty. You're going to do A, B, and C. And then if you do that, I'll do A, B, and C. And they would cut these animals in half. And the lesser king would walk the pieces. And he would say, if I do not keep my bargain, king, you may cut me in half like these animals are cut in half and sometimes rare but sometimes the other king would walk with them and they would walk the aisles together and walk the pieces together saying if neither if one of us breaks our word breaks our oath then may it be done to us as it is done to these animals all right so this is the way covenants worked and so they were acting out the terms of the contract but what happens here abraham puts the pieces out all the animals are cut. And what does God do to Abraham? He makes him fall asleep. He makes him fall asleep. And in verse 12 it says, Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. I want you to hold that. And remember that in your mind, that there's this moment where God is about to do something that caused a dreadful and great darkness to fall. And what happens next is virtually unheard of. It is astonishing and it is unprecedented. God makes Abraham fall asleep and God comes down it's the, in the text It says a flaming torch and fire pot. It's the same language that was used when God is leading the children of Israel by a pillar of fire or the same image on, when God is on top of Mount Sinai. It's this picture of a consuming fire. The presence of God comes down. Abraham's asleep and God walks through the pieces by himself. And do you know what that means? Do you know what it means for you and I, for Abraham, that God walked the pieces, the, the animals ripped into by himself? Abraham is saying, or God is saying to Abraham, I know you're worried. I know you're worried that I won't keep my promises to you. I know you're worried that I will fail you, or that when you mess up too much, I will give up on you and I'll just do it with somebody else. Well, here is how committed I am to you, Abraham. If I fail to keep my promise to you, let my infinity become finite. May my immortality become mortality. Let me become like these animals and let me die. Abraham, if I don't keep every last promise to you, you can take my life, is what he's saying. God is saying this to Abraham. If I don't keep my word, you can take my life. What a statement, could there any be? Could there be any doubt now? Of course God was gonna come through, but that's not it, there's more. Did you notice what didn't happen? Remember, it was always the lesser king that would walk through, but now God has walked the pieces and do you understand what it means that God didn't have Abraham do it? God is not only saying, if I fail you, let me be cut in two, but by not allowing Abraham to walk the pieces as well, he is saying to Abraham, not only will I be punished if I break my word, but I'll take the punishment if you break yours. Oh, church, you gotta get this this morning. God is saying, not only will I be punished if I break my word, but I'll be punished if you break yours. And don't we know that that is exactly what happened? Don't we know that's exactly what happened? God is saying to Abraham, I'll be your shield. I'll bless you even if it means I have to die. And a few thousand years later, every story whispers his name because God would come to earth to bear Death as a curse breaker, as a covenant breaker. You see, you and I are covenant breakers. We've broken our oaths to God. We've broken our word to God again and again and again. But when God walked the pieces for Abraham, he was walking them for you too. So do you see that a God like this, a God who is willing to look at you and say, when you fail, I'll take the price. When you fail, I'll be ripped in two. Don't you see that his mortal, immortality became mortality? That his infinity became finite? That God came and died? That he became like the pieces? He kept his word. Not because he failed, but because you and I did. You see, only when you know a God who is this committed to you, that he himself would be cut off for your mistakes so that he might deliver you. Only when you know a God like that can you face crisis in your life. I want you to think about this. Jesus knows everything that you were ever going to do before you ever did it. He knows all the screwed up, messed up things you would ever think and ever do. And when he stared at the cross, I'm like, should I do this? Should I go be brutally executed and tortured and have the wrath of God poured down on my head for you? And he went anyway. He went And when, at the worst moment, when he could have run away, he stayed. He stayed and he took it for us. And so how is it that we think sometimes when the crisis in our life get too big or when we fail too much, we think God's going to abandon us, that he's going to run away, he's going to find someone else. Why do we think that? If he was willing to stay through hell itself, Why would he run when we mess up? See, if you try to anchor your life in anything else, the anchor won't go deep enough. If you try to anchor your life in anything other than the gospel, your anchor will be swaying in the water and it won't grab the rocks on the bottom to stop you. You will get blown away by the storm. You see, every one of our problems in the midst of Christ has come down to this one single truth in the midst of crisis, you don't trust the Lord. Every one of your problems in the midst of crisis is because in those moments, you do not trust the Lord. And so when you're worried, you don't trust his wisdom. When you're angry, you don't trust his justice. When you hate yourself, you don't trust his love and grace. When you disobey, you do not trust that God is better than everything else. And so you think, I better go get what I can now. When you have anxiety and when you're bitter, it's because you think God is messing up that he got it wrong. Your anchor is in the water. You see, you need an anchor for your soul. So here's what I want you to do in the midst of crisis. I want you to go to God and say, God, how can I know? The world is falling down around me. How can I know? How can I know you're going to be there? How can I know that you're going to bless me? How can I know that you will work all things for good? Because God's not going to say, how dare you ask me that question? He's not going to say that. Instead, he will lovingly take you by the hand and he will point you to a hill where hell was poured out on him because of you. And instead of running away from that, he stayed. And if he stayed with you through that, he will stay with you through anything. Romans 8, 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and he said, drink all of you, for this is the blood poured out for the remission of sins. You see, just as God showed Abraham physically how serious he was about keeping his promise, so has God not only demonstrated on the cross for us, but he has given us a sign. He's given you and me this morning a sign to remind us that no matter how tough life gets, no matter how much we fail him, he will always stay. He will always be our shield. So this morning, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember, remember that God is a promise keeper even when we are promise breakers. And no matter what hell you go through, he's already been through it for you. And he will see you through it. Two ways for us to respond this morning, brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning and you are a faithful follower of Jesus You've submitted to him as your Lord and King, and you've confessed your sins to him. I want you to come and partake of this supper together, this gospel feast that is here to remind us of the links God was willing to go to, to keep his promises to us, that he will be there for us. I want you to come take that and physically re- remember that. But if you're here this morning and you're not his, maybe you've played religion for a while, but you know you're not a child of God. Maybe you think you're a good person on the inside, that you're you know, moral, you're a good old boy, you'll do anything for anybody, but deep down you know that you're in your sins and God has never forgiven you because you've never asked. I'm gonna stand in the back. Would you come and let me share with you how you can find new life? This meal is not for you, but it can be. It can be. So in a moment we're gonna sing a song and when we do, I'm gonna have you stand up. I want you to exit this direction. There are tables here in the front and there are some in the back. Grab it, come around and come back in on the other side. Like a circle. Come and feast on Christ. Feast on what he's done and remember his promises are good and he will keep them. I'm gonna stand in the back. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to share Jesus with you. However you need to respond, let's do it this morning. Father, we love you so much and we come to you right now in this moment and whatever crisis we may find ourselves in, Lord, we pray that you would be our comfort and our shield, that you would be there. And God, would you remind us this morning how you walked the pieces, how you said, when I fail, let me be ripped in two, but if you fail, I'll be ripped in two. And you are with us then and you'll be with us now. So God, as we take... As we take this feast, let us remember that this feast is for sinners, for curse breakers like us. And let us know your great love and forgiveness. God, if there's any in this room who doesn't know you, give them the strength and the courage to come talk to me. I can hug their neck and just love on them and just share them the love that could transform their life. And how they could do that. We love you, Father, in Christ's name. We pray all those people said. Let's stand and sing. Go this way, come forward or go back to partake.
1: Jesus is to To the cause You looked upon My helpless state And led me to The cross And I hell God's love displayed You suffered in my place You bore the right Deserved from me And no oh, I know Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so. the strength to follow your commands could never come from me oh father use my ransom life in any way you choose oh father use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song Hallelujah, Jesus, he is my
0: life. What a joy it's been to be with you this morning. If you're our guest this morning, uh, I would love to meet you. I'm going to be standing in the back. Just... Check, come shake my hands. Introduce yourself to me real quick. Uh, we have a gift for you as well in the back at the information desk. Love to give that to you. Um, hope you guys have a great week. Uh, love you. Peace be with you.